It's Thursday night, and you know what that means. I'm back live with you all, broadcasting live from downtown Newark, New Jersey, looking out at the beautiful Newark and Manhattan skylines. The Empire State Building is crystal clear. I could see it easily from here, lit up bright white. They're filming a movie downtown here at the Mars Wrigley Building. I can see the spotlights out. Don't know what movie or show it is. The weather's been mild. It's been spring in the air. I've been loving it. And I'm happy to be here with you on another week to talk about the week's events and to delve into some legitimate conversation and societal dialogue that's ever so important. More and more as we fast approach the end of a pandemic period and as we fast approach a new chapter in American society and together. Everything I say in this podcast is completely my own opinion as a private citizen. It does not in any way reflect the opinion of any other entity or any other person or any organization. This is not legal advice. Everything I say on this podcast is strictly my opinion as a private citizen for entertainment purposes. Although, you know, I'm a little informative and that's what I strive to be. It's Logic and Larry, my sidekick. Logic is the uh, ambient sense of the word. Logic is just always with me as I'm with you, figuratively. And tonight, what I really want to talk about, and I'll get to it in a few minutes, is you know how do we solve big problems? How do we solve big problems, especially with the predicament we currently find ourselves in with who's in charge and what the dialogue consists of? How do we break this cycle and get to a place where we can tackle big problems as a society, even generational problems, even problems that may take long winded approaches as opposed to critical identifying and then attacking approaches? That's the theme. I'll tell you straight out, I may not be with you next week. I'm looking forward to uh, the last couple weekends of May being uh, free weekends where I have nothing going on. I had uh, my birthday celebrations a couple weeks ago. Then I had a very pleasant weekend uh, after that with a lot of fun activity. And after that, I had my buddy Jay Vreeland's birthday celebrations last weekend. This weekend... I've got volunteer work on Saturday morning, and then I've got another colleague's wedding that Saturday night. And then when June comes, we got a lot going on. Bachelor parties, trips to D.C. You got all kinds of things happening. Father's Day. So I'm looking forward to a nice, chill couple weeks next week, and that's why I might not be with you next Thursday. But I'm with you tonight. I'm with you tonight, so I want to I want to kind of delve into the news. First thing on the agenda, first piece of news that we have is that Derek Chauvin trial. Chauvin, as I told you, would happen, and as was very predictable, and is nothing new. Uh, Chauvin's filed his first appeal. Uh, I believe this might have been a motion to vacate the verdict. I don't know for sure. If somebody does know, feel free to post it in the comments. Um, but. Uh, the end of the day thank you for the jazz compliment that's anthony onesie who i saw live in new york city uh two weeks ago at mez row great great artist a local kind of house artist very good very good performer and i really dug the show uh mez row is a great spot in general so if you get the chance go out to mez row and check it out now at the end of the the day i just want to touch on some news so chauvin so chauvin he um filed an appeal 
and this appeal is based on one juror. They are saying that one of the jurors on his trial uh, apparently attended a Black Lives Matter rally in Washington, D.C. last summer. He had a shirt that indicated something about keeping knees off of people's necks. Uh, he denies that his he denies in any way that his uh, stance for BLM had anything to do with the verdict. Uh, there's no way that that verdict's going to get overturned based on that juror. Here's the simple fact. Just because a juror attended a certain event, just because a juror has a certain um, proclivity to support a certain movement or a certain political belief does not preclude them from serving on a jury. The fact is, this is actually the beauty of our criminal justice system, even though it's constantly disparaged in today's uh, dialogue. The fact is, there's 12 jurors on that jury. And all 12 of those jurors need to agree on either guilty or not guilty in order for any verdict at all to be reached. So as much as there was a juror on there who was sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter movement, A, there's no indication that that juror was biased on the facts of this case. And B, it's more than likely that somebody else on that 12-person jury held different political views and perhaps even opposing political views. And yet, all 12 jurors in relatively a short time came to the conclusion that Mr. Chauvin was guilty on all three counts of the indictment. Therefore, I do not see that coming back. And that's the beauty of our justice system, and it kind of goes with the overall theme of tonight where we tend to look at every issue and every situation and every trial as some kind of partisan issue or some kind of me versus you or this side versus that side or this team versus that team mentality. It's inhibiting our ability to tackle big issues. It's inhibiting our ability to move forward as a society, and that's just one of the things. But listen, Chauvin's going to try every trick in the bag. He's going to try everything he can to try to overturn that verdict. That's what happens. And I, I disagree there, blockchain. Um, I disagree with that. I don't think there's a very high likelihood at all, quite frankly. Uh, I don't. But moving on um, from that news, let's talk about vaccinations. I told you that two weeks ago I got my vaccination and it went fine. It was a Pfizer shot. It was my second shot. I had no side effects. Everything's fine. I should be about immune right now. My whole family has gotten their shots. They are all doing very well. Of course, one of the people I talked about last week who uh, claimed to know two people who had a stroke from the vaccine now has upped the ante. And this person says that she knows three people, three people who have had strokes from the vaccine, yet only six were documented to my knowledge. So I guess she knows 50% of all the people worldwide who have had strokes from the COVID vaccine. I don't buy it. I won't buy it for a second. Um, but here's, here's the interesting thing about vaccines. Here's the interesting thing about vaccines and, and kind of how, how they're going today. There was an article in the New York Times this week. And the article essentially said, and then there were ensuing memes and cartoons which were shared widely uh, there was an article in the New York Times that essentially stated and laid out factually and percentage wise and based on the numbers why we would not, despite what we thought a year ago, despite what we were hopeful for, despite what we thought was going to be the way out of this thing. We now know that we will likely not 
achieve herd immunity from the COVID-19 pandemic. We will not get to herd immunity. It will not happen in this country and probably will not happen worldwide. There's a very, very slim, if any, chance that we're ever going to get herd immunity, meaning we will never eradicate this virus at all. In fact, this virus is likely to mutate annually. We are likely to have it with us for the foreseeable future, if not perpetually. And we may need boosters to keep us protected from it. or We may just have to get used to dealing with it or develop good treatments for it, which luckily we are on the way to developing better treatments for it. But we won't get to herd immunity. And the reason is because not enough people are getting vaccinated. And if not enough people get vaccinated, then they can't keep up with the strains of the virus that continue to emerge and mutate. And if not enough people or a critical mass of the population is vaccinated, then the virus will stay because it'll keep living, mutating, and trading between person to person. The dangerous part about that is that perhaps a certain strain that mutates at some point is able to penetrate past one of the vaccines. Or perhaps the new strain is more contagious or perhaps the new strain is more deadly. So it's a bit of a a scary thought. Nonetheless, the vaccines and the science, again, as I, I explained last week, it's an excellent feat of modern science and medicine and society that we were able to. And again, again, Donald Trump deserves credit for the distribution plan. Operation Warp Speed was a success. It's a resounding success. President Biden deserves credit for continuing to distribute the vaccine. And so everybody deserves credit, but it's a it's a magnificent thing to see. And the fact is that even if we have mutations, it's likely that even if we have mutations, it's likely that we will be able to develop boosters rapidly to counteract any mutations or any new strains of the virus as it comes. So we shouldn't be at a point where we are completely at a standstill or this thing comes back with a vengeance, although we may be susceptible to another pandemic from another virus completely in the near future. Who knows? We were vastly unprepared for this, but we can learn from other countries who were better prepared. That's for sure. But look, back to the the main point, we don't have herd immunity. And I think it's I think it's interesting, right, because I think it speaks to the huge kind of letdown. It's, it's yet another failure of this modern society to tackle a problem. And it's another wake-up call or a, a moment of reckoning for all of us who are optimistic, who have high hopes. I'm not telling you to be pessimistic. But when we were first in the throes of this virus, and the conspiracy theorists at that point were saying that it was man-made and all these other insane theories, Bill Gates was trying to develop the vaccine, insert microchips, all these crazy theories were out there. And times were dark. And there were lines to the store. And you didn't know if gloves would prevent infection. You didn't know if a mask would. You didn't know who was going to get it. You didn't know who it was going to kill. You didn't know when it was going to end. You didn't know if supply lines would dry up. I was speaking to Mark, who unfortunately got cut off on last week's show, about the fact that people were running to buy ammunition and firearms because of how uncertain times were. And let's be honest, it started to downward spiral into a scary situation societally. But back at that point, we all thought, well, if we can get a vaccine, if we can work fast and swiftly to develop a vaccine to counteract this thing, we may be able, 
We may be able to finally beat it. We may come out of this pandemic. And the sooner we get a vaccine, the better. The sooner we develop a a vaccine, the better. We were in that position. And that's what most of us were thinking. Just get a vaccine. How long is a vaccine going to take? How long before we see the first vaccine? Which companies are developing the vaccine? Which companies developing the vaccine so I can invest in the stock, just like everybody's investing in cryptocurrency right now? And hope you're up on Eurythium, Classic, and Dogecoin. I hope you're. I hope you made a couple bucks. I made a couple bucks in playing with house money now. But everybody was rushing and hoping, and all about the vaccine. And it's ironic to me that once the vaccine rolls out and we're like, we got it, we got it. And then it's, you know, how fast can we get it out to people? How fast can people qualify to get it? At what point can anybody just walk in and get it so we can finally move past this? At what point? At what point can we do that? It's ironic that right now, in the words of a, of a, great, of a great local journalist, Mark Bonomo, Mark Bonomo, who writes writes for Tap In, Tap Into Newark, who also is an esteemed colleague as an attorney because he went to Rutgers Law School after that too, and uh, writes some really really good local news. And I got to have him on soon, just like I had uh, Charles Riley on, and uh, maybe even have a panel of the two of them to discuss local journalism. But as he put it. The supply is outpacing the demand for this vaccine. And that's especially true in New Jersey. That's especially true in Newark specifically. Newark has only 22% of the population. Only 22% of its population is vaccinated. Only 22%. And New Jersey, with a population per recent census counts of over 9 million only has about 46% of its adult population vaccinated. That's in contrast to New York city, which has a higher percentage vaccinated, which is why New York is being even more ambitious than New Jersey, even more ambitious than New Jersey in terms of reopening. But isn't it ironic that we were praying and everything rested on how fast and how efficiently we could develop a vaccine And now that we have that vaccine, so many people just don't want to get it. People say, well, it's cultural. People don't trust medicine. That's for some segment of the population that doesn't want it. Other people say, well, it's it's misinformation. And we're stuck in this this spiral. And while we have a literal solution And yes, India is doing even worse. India is in an even worse predicament. They are, as I discussed last week, they are burning and burying, burning and burying bodies in mass cremations in India. It's brutal. It's terrible. But it's 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 such a wonder. We have the solution. It's a literal solution. It's in a needle. It's a literal solution that's available It could get us past this pandemic. It could put this pandemic behind us. We have our foot on the throat of this pandemic. It could end this pandemic once and for all. It could end a disease that's killed millions. Somebody I know lost two parents. People have lost loved ones. Frontline workers have died from this. We could beat it. Yet we can't get enough people to take 
the solution, the vaccine. Some of the same people who were not worried about being infected because it was such a low percentage chance that they die are scared to take a vaccine that's an even lower percentage chance that it's going to cause a complication. What is with that? And that's why I go back to the theme, and I'm going to continue to touch on this theme throughout the night, and I'm going to propose my maybe underwhelming to some solution. How can we tackle big problems as a society when everything we try to tackle these days is this zero-sum binary game? Me versus you, you versus me, red versus blue, white versus a hue, whatever it is. There's always a identity, political identity, alliance versus opponent aspect to everything we discuss these days. And this vaccine is one of them. Everybody who has told me that they're anti-vaccine is the same people who have been an anti-vax the whole time. And most of them are a certain side of the political aisle. And other people are the people who just don't trust anything and don't want to join in and, 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 and listen to science or listen to reason. They just want to jump to their own conclusions and just be stuck in this place where they're naysayers and they're against it. So in Newark, we only have 22% of the population vaccinated. In New Jersey, 46%. The, according to Mark's article in Tap Into Newark, according to the article, many of the sites peaked for appointments in early April and have been declining in people participating ever since. These sites have plenty of vaccine to go around. In the state of New Jersey as well, there's plenty of sites that have vaccines available and they're open nine to five or later and you could walk right in and there's no line you can get your vaccine and be done with it and do your part to move us past this thing yet they are seeing just a slow trickle every day just a sporadic slow trickle of people because people are just hesitant to get it for whatever reason it's it's a shame it's a shame and the hud secretary actually visited newark today from what i understand and the Biden administration is taking an active role in trying to get this, at least this city specifically, and I'm sure several other cities, take an active role in getting us vaccinated so that we can move past this. Now, you know, you got to realize, too, if certain cities are under vaccinated and certain regions of the country are under vaccinated, you may get into a place where. Certain areas that are already struggling economically, that already have struggling business owners, already have struggling populations, those populations, those areas may become further at a disadvantage economically. Further at an economic disadvantage if they don't keep up with vaccinations because if the leaders of those cities deem it necessary to protect the populace or if the hospitals in those cities become overwhelmed, they may face economic downturns due to regulatory burdens that are not matched in other nearby areas. For instance, if New York City is up and running and Newark is depressed economically because of the vaccinations, and it hasn't happened yet, right? Newark's reopening too. New Jersey's reopening too, just like New York. But what if it didn't? What if this hit another critical mass, another surge? So the implications go beyond just health. And it's a shame that we can't get there. And how do we tackle these big problems when there's this constant plethora of misinformation, right? We can't agree as a people. We can't agree on where to go to get the right information on COVID vaccinations. We can't agree on what source is legitimate and what source is not. 
I have people telling me they know three people who had strokes for crying out loud. We can't do anything outside of word of mouth and random blue check marks on Twitter and social media claiming to be the authorities on things. And that's a huge impediment to us tackling our problems. And I'm going to touch back on that soon. But speaking of this, this vast spread of misinformation, and it goes beyond just this idea that we're picking sides arbitrarily just to pick sides. It feeds into this deeper deeper conundrum that we're faced with, which is alternate realities, right? And, and, and people having their own realities. We no longer function even in a space. It's not even as if the space was just, well, we agree on the set of facts before us. We agree on the objective reality that we're each looking at between us, right? But we disagree vehemently even. We disagree to the death, say, on how to tackle that problem. We're beyond that. It's even worse. It's even deeper. It's even more dire today, right? We are beyond that. We're to a point where you don't even agree on the objective reality in front of you. Everybody is not only battling in a binary battle for solutions, but they're in a binary battle as to what is true in the first place. What is true in the first place is at issue. And how terrifying is that? And how problematic is that? I, I tell you, it's very, very problematic. Speaking of these false realities and these alternate realities, you remember on January 6th, the insurrection. Everybody remembers, and I'm not going to spend all day talking about it. I'm just not. But everybody knows what, what started that, okay? What caused that was this vast spin and this this complete fabrication perpetrated by several individuals that the election was stolen okay this was this misinformation it was so severe that even while the vaccination is stalling our ability to tackle a pandemic this might have been worse this caused people to actually storm the capital of what we would love to proclaim and celebrate as one of the most free and open democracies in human history, let alone the modern world right now. Misinformation caused people to truly believe they needed to storm the Capitol. It resulted in one woman at least being killed, an officer dying, several other people being injured, several people currently facing indictment and charges now. That was an example of misinformation. And to that point, and speaking of misinformation about the vaccine and everything else, we had a ruling this week, didn't we? We had a ruling by Facebook. Facebook ruled through this extra, what do you call it? Extra corporate? It's, it's outside of Facebook, which is so weird. It's, it's, extra, it's outside of everything. This panel that Facebook employs to determine whether it's decisions to ban people or to temporarily or permanently and yes i watched the entire election live the entire election live i couldn't sleep i was up all night you know i was up the whole first night and then i was i went to sleep from maybe two to four a.m woke up at four watched the rest of it stayed up all day till the three the next day ate a whole huge bag of taco bell shoved it down my throat passed out woke up the next morning i mean i was on it for four days straight four days straight I was. but at the end of the day, 
you had this misinformation out there regarding that. Okay. And Facebook this week made a final determination through their board. And it, made, it got me thinking too. So Facebook apparently makes these decisions whether to ban certain people or ban certain content, you know, either temporarily or indefinitely. And then they've hired. So, so Facebook has like hired and pay for this outside panel. I found this so interesting. So interesting. So interesting. And if the numbers for Biden don't add up, that just that just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't. I mean, they add up perfectly. Trump was a very, very, very unpopular, unpopular president. So it's no wonder he lost. He lost where you thought he would lose. He lost by the margins you thought he'd lose. He lost at the times you thought he'd lose. All of that. But anyway. This Facebook outside entity. This Facebook outside entity makes determinations as to whether Facebook's initial decisions were accurate or not. And I find it so intriguing because it got me thinking when I read about it this week when the news was going on. What the hell is Facebook? Remember those old movies 30, 40 years ago? Those science fiction futuristic movies where there were extranational corporations that basically assumed power in the world. And these corporations were so autonomous and so independent of any one nation that they kind of made the rules for the world. And they almost acted as a national power because they were outside the purview of national powers, yet they were more powerful. I know my speech sounds redundant. I try to be eloquent, but I'm not always. So at the end of the day, Facebook has this outside entity, which I thought was alarming in itself. Like, who is Facebook? Isn't it alarming? Just pause right there. Pause right there when we talk about misinformation and we talk about how we're going to climb ourselves out. Facebook is so powerful that they can ban a prominent member of the political dialogue, the world political dialogue. And then they have their own personally hired council that sits in some other country that determines whether they made the right decision. This has nothing to do with governments or anything else. We have no control over this. This is how powerful Facebook is. This is how much Facebook runs us. How terrifying is that? How terrifying is that? But anyway, so this week the news was that this Facebook panel decided that Facebook's ban of Donald Trump was legitimate, that they were going to uphold Facebook's ban of Donald Trump. And Facebook had some time to determine whether they were going to listen to that recommendation and keep him banned or whether they were going to do something else or clarify or et cetera, et cetera. So Donald Trump is still banned from Facebook. And apparently it was unexpected in the Trump camp. They thought they would be reinstated. They were a little confused. Now Trump's scrambling. I think he said he was going to start a blog or something. He needs to try to find an outlet. Myself, I'm glad he's banned because all he does is spin nonsense and he gets these people all riled up for no reason. He builds false realities. But it was interesting. It was What was interesting about it was that they didn't uphold Trump's ban on the basis of lies or on the basis of misinformation. And this is what I thought was interesting, too, even with the impeachment trial, the second one. They did do a good job of prosecuting that case, and they did their best to try to tie in the misinformation aspect. The fact that the misinformation campaign started months before the actual election, discussing 
how mail-in votes were going to be fraudulent because the Trump people knew that the way that the election would go down, they'd be counting mail-in votes later in most states. Because the Republican legislatures in those states made it illegal to count the mail-in ballots early. In Florida, they counted the mail-in ballots early. Same thing with Ohio. So we knew on election night who won. And actually, Biden jumped down to leads in those states and then was surpassed by Trump later because they counted the mail-in votes first. But in Pennsylvania and other states that had Republican legislatures, they made it illegal to count the mail-in votes until after the in-person votes. So they did that on purpose, which laid the foundation for Trump to start saying the mail-in votes were fraudulent. And so the misinformation campaign started very early. They knew that in those states, the mail-in votes were going to be counted later and that Biden would probably surpass Trump based on polling and based on how likely Democratic voters were to vote by mail as opposed to Republican voters who were more likely to vote by person. And so they knew that if they planted that seed early because they knew how procedurally the electorate was going to be counted, they knew that if they laid that seed early and often, they knew that. I don't know what's going on in the comments, but look, everybody's welcome here. Everybody's welcome here to to have their say and to, to say whatever they want to say. The ultimate thing is me. They can call up and, you know. People could uh, do well or not, and that's later. But look, he planted that seed early and often, okay, early and often. And that was a, a, a tactical thing. And I know the impeachment trial tried to touch on it, but I don't think they delved just deep enough into it. Back to where I was going. Facebook upheld the ban of Trump, not on misinformation grounds or lies grounds or falsity. In fact, Facebook made the very clear determination that they don't want to police what's a lie and what's truth. And Twitter's the same. And I've noticed with these blue check marks and, you know, those on the conservative side, maybe you could find some sympathy and empathy when I say this. A lot of these shooting cases and a lot of these criminal justice cases, they are skewed with misinformation too. There's a lot of blatant nav- false narratives and fake misinformation coming from the left. And a lot of that misinformation also comes from Twitter and also comes from Facebook. So this isn't just one party. Trump's just the example I'm on right now because Trump this week, Trump this week is in the news. But there's plenty on the left. And in weeks past, you know I've gone through I've gone through the problems with the left and their false narratives, and I've railed against those false narratives time and time again. So this isn't just one party or the other. I'm just using Trump as the example this week. The fact is misinformation is is coming out like a tidal wave, and it's unstoppable on every side, and it's all over Twitter, and it's all over Facebook, and there's no cap on it. And I found it disturbing that Facebook, A, has all this power to decide because the government's not stepping in and regulating this. Government probably should at this point because no one else is. Because no one else is. But they didn't ban him because of lies or because of untruths. They banned him because he incited violence. I'm fine with them banning him because he incited violence if that's what they want to hang their proverbial hat on. But it's scary that they still have not made an effort or a statement 
as to how are they going to handle misinformation and falsities? How are they going to do that? And how are we going to tackle our biggest problems if we can't even figure out how to filter out misinformation and how to regulate information that's coming from this vast Twitterverse and Facebookverse and this internet, this YouTubeverse. People just set up a YouTube video that looks semi-quasi-professional. They did it during the pandemic, and I had to debunk all those theories about where the virus came from and everything else. How are we going to tackle things if we can't even figure out and agree that spreading lies and misinformation is categorically wrong and that people who do so, especially at the level Trump did, should be banned. There are other prominent people on the left. I'm not going to say the name. People will get a little agitated, guarantee it. But there are people on the left who maybe shouldn't be banned for life. But if they get caught jumping the gun or putting fake information out there, all of those things, then they should face a temporary ban at least. They should face some consequence. Everybody should be held accountable, especially when they're in prominent positions and have a large influential base. They get the perks of it. They get advertising money. They get the blue check mark. They get to go on news stations. They get all these followers. They get to promote themselves. They get to have their Patreons and make money. Well, then they should also be held to a higher standard. If they're caught spreading misinformation, if they're caught inciting any kind of unrest that's based on misinformation, they should be held accountable not by the government, but by these platforms. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't just have to be violence. It could also be misinformation in general that's harmful to society. And there is a way to quantify that. I, I guarantee you. And there is a way that if you get enough people, smart people in a room, they could quantify that because the damage being done to our society currently with misinformation is immense. And you make a good point, Hanin. They don't care. They don't care. AI would be probably a better way to police these things because it, it functions better than human beings and we need these systems in place and these mediums should work to obtain these ai systems these software systems to fact check things automatically and filter them out and then ban them instead of letting them fester until somebody complains and the, the odd part is when somebody complains it could even be a malicious complaint the complaint could not even be legitimate they could be complaining about somebody who's spreading factual information and then they get temporarily banned as a precaution, yet literal, actual misinformation is allowed to fester until it causes a disease where we're all not functioning on objective reality. That's got to change. They got to get ahead of that. But I ask you, how do we tackle things when we have this problem? How do we do it? When everything's partisan and is a alternate reality to everything, how do we tackle the problems that we face? The next piece of news that, that came out was this week was Joe Biden. So, so he's out. He's trying to promote this infrastructure plan. And I talked about the infrastructure plan last week. I said how part of it, part of the infrastructure plan was legitimate, you know, roads and bridges. And I believe electric cars are a part of infrastructure. So are solar, solar panels and so are wind turbines and every other thing. That's all infrastructure. And Biden has been, you know, part of the other, the other aspect of the infrastructure plan is this human element, this human infrastructure that he says. And he goes into this human 
element of it. And Bernie Sanders has said there's human infrastructure. That's Bernie's messaging campaign. And they've delved into this quite a bit. And there's a, a whole debate going on as to whether, you know, half of this $4 trillion infrastructure plan is actually infrastructure at all, or whether a lot of it is these liberal pet agenda items. That's up for debate. I would say being the logical person that I am, being the objective person that I am, I would say this. I would say that infrastructure is infrastructure in the traditional way that we consider it, right? It's trains, it's highways, it's bridges, it's tunnels, it's turbines, it's electricity, it's electric vehicles, it's all of these things. This is all infrastructure. The human element, while you may have an argument in an abstract sense that that's also important infrastructure as a nation, it doesn't qualify classically and traditionally as infrastructure the way we would think of it. And so Republicans have a point when they say that that's beyond the scope of what they want to deal with. They have a point. So anyway, tying back to everything, Biden's been on this campaign. He's been going to Louisiana. He's going to red states, going to blue states. Kamala Harris is going to different states. They're trying to pitch this infrastructure plan. And they're trying to make headway, especially with working class people, as to why this is important. And my stance on infrastructure has long been long been no the fact is that infrastructure is vitally 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 important to this country and we are being surpassed by china and other nations because we have failed to invest in ourselves for a generation now for a generation we have been letting money go to the top cutting taxes for the wealthy Raising the tax burden, therefore, and raising just the cost of living in general for the middle class of this country. All the while, not making investments in our own infrastructure and our own capabilities, which would make us a world leader the way we were in the mid 20th century. And that's got to stop. So there's this push from the Biden people. Push from the Biden people. Yeah, the middle class is, is disappearing. And uh, Carly, you're right. And that's the problem. Since the 1980s, since this tax shift and placing a high, heavier burden on the middle class, not to mention the, the leaving of the country of middle class jobs, including blue collar manufacturing jobs, we've seen the shrinking of the middle class. And the way to get back at that, people don't want to hear it if they're on the right because they just want to complain about taxes all day. But the fact is, the wealthy have gotten much more wealthy and the middle class has shrunk. We need to reinvest in the middle class. The way to do that, Biden said it. You don't have to make a wind turbine in Beijing. You can make a wind turbine in Pittsburgh. It sounds kishy. It sounds hokey. But guess what? That's the damn truth. If you incentivize taxes and you invest government dollars into public-private partnerships, as we have done since the inception of the country, we built canals that way. We built ferry lines that way. We built cars that way. We built so many things with a public-private partnership, the water companies, the electrical companies. It's private entities who profited, but it's public dollars and public collaboration that made it happen. We can do it again. We need to. It's been the, the blueprint for prosperity, and it's been the blueprint for success in this country since it started. It doesn't matter what people might have their pet ideas now shaped by 1980s Reaganism or 1990s, you know, Clinton moderation or, you know, George Bush or but but all that's out the window. The fact is there's a static truth. 
There's an objective static truth, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, because we're in our partisan bubbles. And the fact is that public investment and public investment in private partnerships spurs economic growth. It did it with the highway system. It did it with automobiles because the highways caused the proliferation of more automobiles, the suburbanization, which was government-backed mortgages, caused the proliferation of the automobile industry, caused the proliferation of the trucking industry, all of the other things. It's long happened. Okay, we need to do it again if we want to compete with who we're up against. We need to do it again if we want to alter the trajectory we're currently on that is punishing the middle class. Everybody in the middle class now thinks they have to go to four year colleges, get four year degrees, because the only way they can compete in a service based economy is to go and get those white collar degrees. Well, what if we channeled more and more people into vocational degrees and they went out and started making these wind turbines? They started installing these electric charging stations. They started becoming the world leader in the development of electric cars. They started becoming the world leader in solar installation. I know several people from my hometown that are doing very, very, very well selling solar panels because the homeowners are getting breaks on the taxes. It's incentivized by the government and it's causing middle class people that I grew up with to be very successful. That's exactly an example of how this thing could work. So Biden's out there trying to sell this plan. And whether you agree with the overarching whole thing where it encompasses human capital and actual infrastructure or not, there's a legitimate argument to be had there. I applaud Republicans for challenging it. They should. That's what they should be doing, challenging it, but not just opposing it for the sake of opposing it, not saying they have no chance of getting anything started. That's not the way to do it. And anyway, why do I bring this all up? Well, Biden said something today that I, I shared that I thought kind of went along with my theme for tonight, which is how are we going to tackle big problems when we're residing in these individual silo-based bubbles? How are we going to tackle big problems? He said that infrastructure that jobs is not a Republican or a Democrat issue. Infrastructure, jobs, innovation is a generational issue. All of us, Republican, Democrat, big government, little government, high tax, low tax, we all, we all have a stake in the generational task at hand, which is reinvestment in our infrastructure and a shift back to the middle class, back to the creators, back to the innovators, back to the manufacturers from the shipping overseas job people, the speculators, the ultra wealthy. And Biden's plan, at least with respect to that, it's not raising the tax burden so high on these, quote, job creators who have failed to create great jobs over the last generation, hence the disappearance of the middle class. It's not so burdensome that it's going to wipe them out. It's just a little bit more of the pie. It's like if one guy has one slice of a pizza, they eat it and they're still starving. Another guy has three pies and he stuffs himself and then he stacks the other two pies away in a pantry. Biden's saying, give me half of one of those pies. Let me give it to this other guy. That's it. That's the simplistic way the numbers work out. There are even less than that. He's like, give him two more slices. That's all it is. And it's for a good cause, though. This isn't going to like, this isn't going to, 
you know, social programs. I mean, one aspect of the bill it is, and that's where the Republicans are fighting back. But let's just keep it to the infrastructure. It's not going to social programs or, you know, sit on your butt programs. This is going to actual innovation, actual jobs, actually creating things. And I thought it was interesting that Biden made the statement that this is a generational issue. And I read another article on him and how he truly believes, because this article was on court packing. And they were discussing how Biden's commissioned this bipartisan uh, panel to discuss whether the court should be reformed with either 18-year terms, and I mean the Supreme Court, or if they should pack the court, yada, 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 yada. And the, the, the common knowledge out there is that Biden is opposed to stacking the court. He doesn't believe in packing the court, just doesn't. And there are reasons for that. And one of the reasons that they explored in this article was Part of the reason Biden doesn't believe in stacking the court is he truly does believe. He truly is holding out hope, as I do. And let me be honest, I've reached a lot of people on both sides of the aisle, so I know it's possible to appeal to people's logic and, and people's sense of objectivity and solution-based utilitarian thinking rather than ideological emotional thinking. I know it's possible. I know there's many of us out there, whether on the right or whether on the left, that want to get to solutions regardless of some pet ideology. So he's holding out hope, and I'm holding out hope, and I hope some of you are holding out hope, that he can appeal to this sense of purpose that transcends party, this sense of purpose that transcends pet ideologies, and accomplish something that is really an existential prerogative and should be for this entire generation and this nation really, really, really should. And he said it that way, and it got me thinking about this central theme for tonight, which is how do we tackle big societal problems? And more importantly, how do we, how do we transcend and how do we eventually, how do we escape and circumvent? How do we circumvent this endless cycle that we're in? Where we are in our own relative realities and our own relative ideologies and we're fighting to the death over everything from masks to vaccines to infrastructure investment to reality of a, of a free election. How do we circumvent that? I have some ideas, I'm going to tell you. And I think it lies in the failures of our current dialogue from the left and the right. And I think the solution lies within a much more subtle much more tried and true, much more humanistic approach to how we approach issues. So interestingly, exacerbating these silos, we have these different states now, right? If there's some hot button political issue, i.e. protests, you have states where there's no protest to speak of, like Oklahoma, just passing these anti-protest laws, not because Oklahoma has an issue with protests or needs to actually you know, fight an actual problem with an actual proposed solution. Florida had the same situation, but not because Florida has some massive protest problem. I see all these laws getting passed recently, where Arizona now is preventing teachers from engaging in certain conversations that the, the slang term for the law is the anti-woke law in Arizona, right? where they're trying to pass a law that would penalize educators 
if educators delved into topics regarding, you know, race, critical race theory. If educators in Arizona delve into critical race theory, they'll be penalized, even though I doubt Arizona has this vast problem with that. On the contrary, I read an article this week where several parents in New York City pulled their children out of schools, prominent schools in New York City, because they were preaching this critical race theory and basically telling nine-year-olds that they're overprivileged because of their race or et cetera. Or one kid, apparently, I don't know if it's true, and I'm not advocating one way or the other on the issue. I'm just reporting what I read. And this was in a reputable publication. I think it was the New York Times. Could have been the Daily News or maybe the Post, which <laughs> may be a little less reputable, but still reputable overall, right? Essentially, the publication stated that the teacher, the, the parent pulled the kid out of school because the kid came home one day and said, am I bad because I'm white? Because this critical race theory wants to box, you know, people of the white race into certain, you know, categories based on critical race theory. And from the beginning, they're they're conceptualizing people's interactions in this country under the uh, paradigm of critical race theory. And it's an interesting debate. Nonetheless, in New York, people are pulling their kids out of school. People, some people are voting for it. They're they want that curriculum. They're advocating fiercely for a critical race curriculum. But nonetheless, place other states that don't even have that issue at all are making laws just to cater to the national debate, right? Why does DeSantis in Florida have to pass an anti-protest law? He's not doing it to tackle an actual problem in Florida. He's doing it to appeal to this national binary that pits protest against law or whatever the hell they're trying to say. When in reality, protest is a fundamental pillar of the United States Constitution. The right to peacefully assemble is a fundamental pillar of this country, right? And we should all be able to agree which we don't because, again, the left gets in trouble here too, right? Because we all agree, we should agree that protest is completely legal and should be even encouraged. But that violent destruction, violent insurrection, violence is not to be condoned. But we have a, an impasse there too, don't we, right? Some people on the right get mad that there's even a protest at all, right? People on the left want to turn the other way or sometimes even clap for destruction and violence, I'm not saying everybody, but it happens. But instead of dealing with the actual problems and coming to a consensus together as a nation based on shared values and common sense, we are stuck in this downward spiral where we continue, continue to pass laws that are meaningless just to appeal to this national stupid fight, that all it is is a marketing gimmick to get politicians elected more and more and to appeal to these binary bu uh, bubbles that we reside in. And interestingly, even in, in Newark, when I referred to that article that Mark wrote, Mark Bonomo wrote in Tap Into Newark, he quoted the Newark mayor. And the Newark mayor said, well, they said, what, why, what's going on with the vaccinations in Newark? Why is vaccinations at an all-time low? What's happening with these vaccinations? And what the mayor said is going to exemplify both part of the issue I'm identifying and what my proposed solution is and long has been. The mayor said, well, we need more help from Trenton. The outside world, the outside of the rest of the state, everybody else treats us differently as it is. And we need them to do more for us. That's the problem with the vaccinations. 
Well, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, all due respect to the mayor, because there's tons of resources in Newark. The state-run mega sites are a pleasure to deal with. I dealt with one in South Jersey. It's in and out. They're well-staffed. They're well-organized. They're very efficient. We have a federal site in Newark. We have state sites in Newark. We have various county sites in Newark. They are all easy to get to. They are all navigable. Now, at the same time, we're now having outreach in various neighborhoods with different uh, leaders of religious congregations, et cetera, which is all a good solution. It's a good thing to do. And I fully understand people's apprehension about vaccinations in certain areas due to historical issues, but we've got to outreach. But saying Trenton needs to do more, you know what that's doing? That's appealing, in my opinion, from where I saw it. That's appealing to the same idea that, well, I got to find a grievance. And I think both sides do this, right? That's what we are. We're in this aggrieved, angry cycle where I got to find somebody to be mad at. I got to find somebody who's my enemy. I got to find somebody who's against me and then attack them and try to destroy them and try to tear them down. That's how we talk about issues today right? We don't talk about issues in a, in a, in a pragmatic way with, a, with an eye towards coming to a mutually beneficial solution, with an eye towards bringing in different ideas until somebody has the best idea or building on each other's ideas until we find a solution. We deal with issues these days by saying, okay, here's the issue. Here's the issue. Okay, who do I blame? So if it's climate change, I don't want to bring people in. I want to say, well, it's the corporation's fault. factories. They're, they're to blame. And if I'm on the factory side, I don't want to say, well, I really need to get in order and, and fix the climate and I need to be more equitable. No, no, no. It's these tree huggers, these liberals fault. And we just find an enemy and then we attack the enemy instead of talking to each other and finding a common sense, common cause, which I guarantee we all share because we all have as human beings uh, an instinct for survival, an instinct for cooperation, an instinct for collaboration, an instinct for community. We are appealing to the wrong side of our human sense. And when he did that, what he was doing was appealing to that. I'll find the reason why we're not vaccinating quick enough and blame them. But interestingly, here's where my solution comes in. How can we tackle these problems together? How can we circumvent this spiral that we're in, this angry battle that we're in? How can we do it? How can we do it? Well, here's how we could do it. In another post that the mayor had this week, the mayor posted a picture of himself at a construction site where lead pipes were being replaced. And lead pipes in Newark, as opposed to some other cities in this country, lead pipes that are leading to increased, increased lead content in drinking water, lead pipes in this country, are being replaced in Newark at a very, very quick rate. Lead pipes in this country in Newark, in Newark, in Newark, not the country, but Newark, are being replaced very rapidly. We're almost near completion of replacing our lead pipes, from what I understand. And Mayor Baraka posted a photo of him with a crew who was replacing lead pipes. And he said, this is a company that is owned, it's black owned. It's managed by an African-American person. The workers I am posing with are black and brown people. And the contract is worth millions of dollars. It went to a minority-owned company. Don't tell me we can't do what we're doing. Something along those lines is what he said. If 
his statement on the vaccines exemplifies the problem I'm talking about, then that comment and that actual action exemplifies the solution. Rather than dwell on who's to blame for the lead pipes, who's to blame for inequities and contracts awarded by the government, rather than do that, there was a common problem, which was the lead pipes. There was a common solution, which was changing those lead pipes out and incorporated into that solution was a multifaceted solution that encompassed racial inequities, wealth building, collaboration, community impact, and the solution to the core problem, which was the lead pipes. We don't need to fight over capitalism versus socialism. We don't need to fight over taxes versus... It's not a zero-sum game. We don't need to identify a perpetrator of an injustice and just spend all our time hammering away at that perpetrator rather than trying to find the way forward. We can identify a problem, acknowledge its existence, acknowledge our roles in it. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging critical race theory and acknowledging economic inequalities and acknowledging historic inequalities in this country. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging it. Nothing wrong with pointing it out. It should be pointed out. It should be historically identified. But where do we go from there? How do we move forward in a pragmatic way? How do we tackle our biggest issues? How do we circumvent the binary silos we're in? That's how we do it. We find a common sense, a common cause, a common sense of purpose. And we press forward in equitable ways that empower everybody in ways that we have long valued. We have long valued entrepreneurship. We have long valued people owning companies and pushing the economy forward and being rewarded economically for finding solutions for society. And that's what we did with the lead pipes in Newark. And that's what the mayor pointed out. And I was again startled by a news piece this week that came out of my law school, Rutgers, Newark Law School, where somebody had quoted a legal text. And in in the legal text, A a derogatory word was used, but the word in the legal text was not even being uttered by the person being quoted in a derogatory way. person quoted it because it's a literal legal text. It's literally the facts, and that's how court works, and that's how things work. And certain people took it way out of proportion. And instead of analyzing why the word was used, analyzing what the case meant, analyzing why it's uncomfortable, analyzing all these things, they took to petitions, and they tried to demand things, and all all this other stuff, all this outrage. Wasting so much time trying to vilify a fellow student, vilify an esteemed professor, instead of delving into the analytical aspect of where we are and how we move forward. And I don't bring that up to dwell on that story. I just thought it warranted mentioning because everything I see these days seems to be this aggrieved, who would be aggrieved, who would grieve them, what their fault is, and then they just stay there. There's no, there's no movement beyond that. And while I understand pointing out why somebody's aggrieved and who's aggrieving them. There needs to be a way forward. And I, I was, I came across a clip. I came across, and, and Carly, good, good point, good point. But I know your name's not Carly, but good point, good point. And that's that's 100% true. And I, actually, a, a, a boss of mine said that. They, I was commended because the boss said, you never come in just asking me a blank question. 
you always come in having diagnosed the problem, done the potential research, and then proposing a solution and just trying to make sure that I approve. And if I don't, it's because we're collaborating because maybe I see something you don't see rather than fighting, rather than being adversarial. Well, I came across this clip and this is going to sound again, can't be. This is going to, you know, in this today's climate, I'm going to sound like Mr. Rogers, which I guess is a bad thing today. And I'm going to be Some people are going to want to shout me down and say, you know, you're full of it and you're trying to go the easy way out and you're downplaying things. But I assure you, in my everyday life and and, and even taking the time on this podcast, plus all the other things I do, I am not downplaying or taking lightly anything. I assure you, I fundamentally have thought about this at length. And I fundamentally, as an intellectual, think that certain approaches are better than others. And I legitimately legitimately lay forth my position, not because I'm trying to duck the issue or be campy, but because I legitimately, theoretically, ideologically think the best way forward is certain things and not others. I came across a clip this week that was from Family Matters, and it involved racial profiling. And it was a a heartbreaking episode and a heartfelt episode, and it pointed out a legitimate problem. And it diagnosed it without ducking, without making it campy, without making it cheeky, without making it lighthearted. It it approached an issue. But it did it in a way where there was an ascension, where Carl Winslow was a police officer himself, where he said even being a police officer did not cure him being profiled. But in a world where him becoming a police officer was a step in the right direction to rectifying it. And when he told his son... As cheesy as it is, because it's a 90s sitcom, it's true. He told his son, put the anger where it matters, into actual activism. Put the anger into progress. And he told off the cop. And he filed a report. And we all clapped when you watched the show that he told him off. He didn't duck away from it. He didn't hide. He called out the person. He let him hear it. But then he still steered into pragmatism. And that is a larger thing. I want to ask you this. Why this millennial generation, which I'm a part of, which most of my listeners are a part of, this millennial generation, I'm not talking about Gen Z. I'm not even talking about Gen X. I'm talking about the millennial generation. Do you or do you not objectively think that the millennial generation is farther ahead socially as far as gay marriage, interracial marriages, open-mindedness, housing equity, school equity. Is the millennial generation, is it or is it not more open-minded, more pragmatic, and in a better position than many previous generations? Is it or is it not? I think it's undeniable, undeniable that the millennial generation is much in a better position in terms of those issues than this country's ever been. So why do we see this pivot back to this militantism and this 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 you versus me mentality in education, politics, media and otherwise with the upper upcoming generation Gen Z? Why is it changing? Wasn't our education pretty good? Look where we are. Look how we vote. Look how we treat each other. And why is that? Was it because maybe the 90s Those subtle societal exposures to each other. I was talking to my sister the other day. What did we watch? 
We watched Are You Afraid of the Dark? We watched Cal- Cal- Clarissa Explains It All. We watched Home Improvement, Full House. But Full House, wasn't that an extended family that was unique from other ones? We also watched Keenan and Kel, My Brother and Me, Family Matters, Fresh Prince. Didn't we? We watched all that. Does it sound stupid? Maybe, but only because the climate today makes you think of, that, of it that way. How much influence did that just raw exposure to each other have? Dora the Explorer, she speaks Spanish to kids. I remember a buddy saying, oh, she speaks Spanish. I like I put, put my kid in front of it as much as I can. Show some exposure, different words. Sounds silly, but it's not. Human beings have certain tendencies and human beings have certain ways of interacting with each other. And human beings have certain things that appeal to their better nature and their worse nature. And we are caught in a cycle now where we can't even get a vaccine distributed equally. We couldn't even get a vaccine distributed adequately. And where we can't even agree that we had a great accomplishment in having a historic turnout in a national election during a pandemic and elected somebody who's very middle of the road who wants to pass an infrastructure plan. And at our very root, we seem to be saying that we need to be more divisive with every ounce of our effort and that somehow that's going to get us to the promised land. But I propose to you that human beings do not function in that way. The way to get human beings to circumvent this, the way to get us there, and I I disagree, I think I disagree with that siren. If you look at the, the history from the 80s to now, while our mentality has been better, that's been the opposite. We've we've divested from the communities most of the need. We've divested since Reagan. Reaganomics was a killer. We die while that was all going on, we were divesting even further from those communities. It was some of the worst times ever for people in depressed communities in the 80s and 90s. Only now are we diverting the money back. And only now do we have a voice because we were shaped socially, socially by what was going on then. That's my point. We weren't voting age. We wouldn't have power in the 90s. We were little kids. Now we're doing that. It's gotten better post-2000, post us having the power from our being shaped the way we were socially. My proposal is not just race. It's everything, politically, everything. We need to start looking at things like infrastructure, national pride, relationships between different groups of people, LGBTQ, different races, immigrants, immigrants, That's another big one, immigrants. We need to be orienting ourselves socially, orienting our children socially, subtly too, not always being so abrupt and and upfront so that it creates a fight. Introducing and exposing our society to each other and to issues so that we stop viewing them as me versus you. Imagine if when the pandemic had hit, Trump hadn't made it, me versus them, they're trying to take it away from me, they're trying to hurt my economy. Imagine if he was like, wow, okay, guys, we have a great economy. We are doing wonderfully. We have now the biggest challenge we've seen in a generation. We've got to fight it together. I am going to ask for masks. I'm going to follow the science. I have a great distribution plan, Operation Warp Speed. We are going to do this together. I bet he would be the president right now if he did that. But his shtick is to divide, not to unite. And that's why he's sitting somewhere in Mar-a-Lago right now.
That's why. He took the wrong tactic, the wrong approach. I propose to you that we need a more collaborative approach, and I don't know how it's going to be done. It's got to be done in all these different societal aspects and all these different ways. From the lawyer in the courtroom who reaches out to people who feel they can't trust lawyers, victims, defendants, co-counsel alike, to the teacher who's collaborative in the classroom, who exposes kids to different things, to the police officer on the street who's more equitable, who's more community-oriented in his policing tactics, to the department that hires people from the community, that has a mandate that people that work there should live there, be from there, to the politicians stopping being the Mitch McConnells of the world and become more like the Joe Bidens. And how about the John Roberts, Justice John Roberts? He's so, he's objective. He's going to call balls and strikes. He doesn't care what his political ideology is. Some things Roberts did, liberals agree with. Some things Roberts did, liberals hate. Some things conservatives clap for. Sometimes conservatives vilify him. But he's a legitimate objective mind who believes in the national way forward. The whole way we're going about all these issues from the pandemic to everything else is the wrong approach. That's my, it's the wrong approach. I know people are wedded to it. They've made careers speaking about it. They, they've staked their entire intellectual position on it, but I think it's wrong. And I think the way forward, how do we tackle these things? How do we get past these petty issues, fighting over a vaccine to the point we're not going to get herd immunity? Fighting over infrastructure when it's a national prerogative that we surpass China. It's us versus China, not us versus each other. Fighting over a couple points in a tax plan. Passing laws in states that have nothing to do with it. Why? Just so politicians could get reelected on hot button issues. We could be more angry. Media companies like Facebook could generate more clicks and more engagement so they get more advertising dollars. While we kill ourselves slowly as a nation and society. That's the wrong way to go. The wrong way to go. So my proposal is how do we move forward? We have to start developing a national identity and a sense of community with each other, expose each other to each other, not in the way you might think if you're trying to be funny. But find a common sense of purpose instead of trying to find what divides us in every single issue. Instead of trying to find out who your enemy is on an issue, find out who your allies are on an issue. Because I bet even some of the people you think are your ideological enemy have certain things in common with you. And you can forge a relationship on that specific issue, even if you fight next week on a different one, to tackle some of the biggest problems we are currently facing. That's my proposal. I think the news this week ties all into that. I think the news ties into all of that. And again, maybe I sound like a broken record sometimes because I keep preaching kind of the same things, but I guess that's my mission, isn't it? And I'm happy to take it on because I think it's maybe one of the most, one of the fundamental challenges of our time. And that's that. Now, I welcome calls, but Mark got cut off last week. I'm gonna, Calls are going to be limited to a strict five minutes. Unless you're somebody I'm interviewing and you have a guest spot to come on, calls are going to be limited to a strict five minutes so that I can get everybody a chance. And so that I don't burn out just talking to people. 
you know, because I love to have your calls, but you know, they can't, they can't dwell on forever. So that being said, I'm open to calls. If you want to call, just use the app. Just use the app. Just call in on the app. I'm happy to take your calls. I hope the quality is better this week. I did invest in some new hardware. So hopefully um, it works. And hopefully I sound a little better. Hopefully you can hear the music a little more clear because that was the overall goal. Overall. But um, yeah, the jazz kind of adds to the whole the whole thing. But look. I'm open for calls. Try to use the app if you can. It just makes it a lot easier. Like I said, I'm open for them. Five minutes. You know, look, if, if it's going a little, if it's going a little, you know, and that look. Blockchain, you've been going in a lot on the chat. What's going on? Hey, what's up? Hello from Dubai, man. You there? Yeah, yeah. Can you hear me? I can't hear you if you're there. Uh, hello. Hold on. Definitely, definitely can't hear you. Trying hello? to figure out why. Can others hear? Because I can't. Hello, hello. Oh, I think other people can hear me. Reason. I think you can't hear me. I guess. That's a bit strange. Let me see. You there, blockchain? Yeah. Can you hear me now? Now I can hear you. Yeah. Uh, the, the only thing what I want to say is, you know, I'm not for either of the party, either the Republicans or Democrats. And hello from Dubai, by the way. It's six thirty in the morning. Right. The, yeah, the well. only yeah, the, the only thing what I want to say is, you know, if you're on your laptop right now, you know, you mentioned when this whole COVID nineteen thing happened, and Trump should have said, you know. Let's work on the science. Let's work on the mask. All I'm saying is go to the official White House YouTube channel. They have a Trump archive. Now go back to April 20. Go back to April 20. And there are long videos which are two hours long. And these are live videos unedited. I'm not saying that what he did was a brilliant job. I'm not saying that what he did was absolutely rubbish. All I'm saying is, watch the entire video. Now, I'm sure you know that you can change the speed. Because these videos are long, you can change the speed of these videos to maybe 2x the speed or 3x the speed. Watch each and every video. Every day he's been on for almost two or three hours every day talking about the science behind it, talking literally about how the masks are going to be made, each and everything about the Operation Warp Speed. That's all I'm saying. I'm not so, going yeah, to say I, Now, look, I said that Operation Warp Speed was a success. So I guess my yeah. question would be, you know, what did he say that you're, you know, that you're saying, you know, that negated the fundamental... Uh, issue that I'm putting forth that he did a bad job of uniting the country and and getting us in the equal place. No, that's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying you know, is treating it seriously. No, no, that's not what I'm saying as well. What I'm saying is just go through the videos. These videos are really long. It's like two or three hours, but you can literally hear him talking for two to three hours every day. 
one problem what I see is, you know, something which you talked about, the information. I think we are at this part of time where the source of information is so critical as well. Looking up information is not that important, but looking at the source of information. Now, my question is, watching a full two-hour unedited live video, is that a good source of information? I personally think it is. So you It know, could be, yes. But so yeah, what I'm saying I is... I could be wrong. Yeah. But what, what information that you gleaned from those two-hour videos would change the perception of Trump and how he handled the pandemic? If you were to ask me, and this is, again, what I would say is, you know, watch these videos. I think he handled it pretty well, considering, you know, again, you need to watch the videos. You need to go out and watch All right, the videos. So, so you're saying he just YouTube. handled it very well, but you don't have a specific example as to why it negates my In general, you know, of, sentiments. You know, at the no, no. In terms of when you're talking about sentiments, he mentioned about the deals with China as well. In terms, you know, what specific steps he had actually gone ahead and taken. Information that you said that, you know, he kept on complaining about China. That is just what, you know, some of the media shows. The media does not show the two hour long videos. That's the reason, you know, I'm saying you would get a better idea. And again, you can still disagree to it. You can say, hey, you know what? I watched this two or three hours long video. I don't agree to it still. That's fine. My problem is 80 to 90% of the people, they don't watch that entire two hour video. And he's literally for each and every state, each and every county, they have gone ahead and discussed what is the current state? How is the virus spreading? What is the science behind it for each and every county? each and every state and some of the videos they were also done twice a day so you're talking about like three hours in the morning three hours in the evening and then talking about you know how it affects from a political standpoint of view so i'm not saying i see what you're saying so you're saying that essentially yeah. there's a different a different perception when you watch the entire videos. I still think overall, right, because his actions speak louder than words, he mishandled it. But I agree with you that in general yeah. today, and that's an example, is we never look at the full videos in context. All we look at is sound bites exactly. out of context. That's, ex that's exactly what my skews the conversation. Yeah. 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 And, I, and I agree know, with that. The, the other thing which I was typing earlier on as well, there is a really interesting article by Ray Dalio He's mentioned about, right. you know, Joe Biden's that It's a really beautiful read. It's just like 15 minutes long. So, you know, it's a lot of useful information about that. I'm not saying I'll that check that out. Thing. I will say the election yeah. is far beyond reproach for me. I've done I've done the research on that. But let yeah. me ask you, how are things going in the Dubai region regarding COVID-19 and where what regions over there are the ones that we see suffering? Or is that media portrayals? Now, to be honest, Dubai is a relatively small city, so okay. it's really much easier to go and manage. I mean, everything is back to normal since the past eight months because I've done a couple of marathons, all the sporting activities, everything is back to normal over here. But again, right. you know, because it is a very small city, you can cover the entire Dubai city in probably two hours' time. So, gotcha. Know, okay. Was, okay. There, there was a lockdown only for three weeks. So only for three weeks, 
we couldn't go out from 8 a.m. in the morning till 6 p.m. But now we are right. things are back to normal. So, well, that's good. That's that's yeah. certainly that's certainly good. So, listen, <laughs> I, I respect what you uh, what you had to say here. I, I appreciate you chiming in on the um, on the podcast too. I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. let you go because I want to try to get other callers and I want to try to figure out what's wrong with my speakerphone. Right, cool, but cool, cool, I welcome cool, you to cool, join cool, us cool. again every Thursday night. We're on. I welcome you to call back so again too. It was a pleasure having well. you on and uh, having you, you in the too, conference. Well. Yeah. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Take care. So that was an interesting conversation, and he said what he what he had to say, and I think it made, you know, he got his point across, which you know on this show that's what we do. We make sure everybody gets their point across, and we discuss, uh, you know, the issues. Now, what I'm having an issue with, just so you guys know technically, is I'm hearing the volume very low when somebody calls, apparently. For some reason, um, I'm going to see if that changes if somebody calls again now. Let's see. You're on the air. See if I could hear you better. You're there. Somebody just called. No, they're not on. Call back. Yeah, there you can. I, can Am I in? Wow, that's crazy. You, now I could hear you. I'm, I'm, I'm hang on. I have to turn this down. Sounds like you're in a, on the moon. Yeah, I can't hear you on my phone at all. Now I can hear you. I hear you well. Pretty, I hear you well, actually. I can't hear you on my phone at all. What, what can you hear me on? The computer? Yeah, that's why it's echoing. I think. Well, okay, so maybe uh, that's that's odd. I don't know why that's the case. I got to figure out these little quirks. You know that? I really because I'm a hippie. Yeah, maybe that's it, Rick. But I mean, I could hear you. I mean, I think now we could be in space, but at least we could hear you. <laughs> Should I, mean, I maybe, call back on the regular number or no? Turn the computer down as be- as much as you can and still hear me, I guess. I won't I be know. able to hear you at all. I've got it down like minimum amount though to hear you. All right. Well, you know what? We're just going to have to stay on uh, Echo. You know, I don't really care. I think it sounds kind of cool. And that's just going to be your new persona until we figure out what the problem is. But, yeah, uh-oh. man. <laughs> So what's going on? What's what's going on? How you feeling? What's your comments? What's your thoughts? Um, so I'm not going to get into the whole thing with DXB or any of that stuff we were chatting about in the uh, comments, but um, I just wanted to talk about this Arkansas HB. What is it? Fifteen seventy or something? Okay, you tell so, me because I, don't, I think I know what you're talking about, but I'm not positive. So let us all know. It's the uh, bill that Arkansas passed that is forbidding any surgery or hormonal treatment or whatever for transgender people. Okay, okay, okay. So, and and wait, I think this falls under your misinformation slash polarized viewpoint thing that you were talking about. I think so. And how, how do you think it falls? Are you saying because it's it's just to counteract like some national hot button issue with no actual reason to do it or it's almost that seems like it's really can be harmful to people in that state like really it's it's pushing it's pushing the agenda okay this is where the part of the people are doctors are being able to tell transgender people they won't give them medical treatment right yes and really all it is is they're not allowing people under the age of 18 to have surgery or hormonal treatment to change sexes before they're 18. Oh, but what about post-18? 
Oh, that that's not what the bill is about. It's about pre-18. Okay. Okay. And now pre-18, even if the family and and doctors agree, the state's prohibiting that type of treatment. Now, the issue I have with this is that we don't let kids get tattoos or vote or drink or anything else. And they're making this sound like it's discrimination. And I don't, I don't believe this is discrimination. And the argument they're positing is that if we don't allow these transgender youth to get their surgeries or hormonal treatments, that they're going to commit suicide. Right. So wait, but there's no said- medical emergency that requires any of these surgeries. And my stance, I, I mean, I kind of agree with it because we don't let kids do anything else or make any other decisions of that level of importance before they're 18. But so we, if they have their parents permission, we do right now at 16. Yeah. At 16, you can, isn't that when you can start to, uh, what do you call that? When you divorce your parents, emancipate yourself emancipation or or you can get tattoos with parental permission from 16 on right but you but you can't you can't buy alcohol you can't get a tattoo i mean you can get a tattoo at 16 but if you're 10 and your kid says you know i want to be a girl you don't take them to the doctor and go hey make my son a girl but what if you I don't, do i mean so what if the kid goes to the doctor, they, they go to the all through all the, the normal procedures that you're required to go through to, to undergo that type of treatment. The doctor says that it's legitimate. The psychologist says it's the, whoever they got to go through. They all agree that that's that they truly are transgender, that they would benefit from that type of therapy. And then the parent agrees. Why should the parent and the child be prohibited from undergoing that type of surgery? Uh, it, it's. Uh, I made the assessment that if I had a 10-year-old and he wanted to be a rodeo cowboy, I don't take him out and put him on a you know, 2,000-pound bull and let him ride. Or if my daughter is hitting puberty and all her friends hit puberty a couple years earlier and have boobs now, I won't take my daughter to the doctor and say, hey, can you give her some you know, 32 Cs so she doesn't feel so insecure? Yeah, but that's you. What if some other parent did? I mean, I'm sure there's rodeo parents that do put their kids on the bull if the kid's ready. I mean, you, no. had, you personally, you personally wouldn't do it. But there's people that that do. There's people that do all those things you said. No, not not a full size bull, Larry. Huh? Not a full size bull, and they definitely don't give their 12 year old daughters boob jobs. What about 16? 16 again. You then you have. A debate, right? But but that's not what's being fronted out here on the left. What's being fronted is that this is discrimination against transgenders, and it's not. It's just saying children shouldn't be allowed to make these decisions. Because if your ten year old is a boy that wants to be a girl, what if at twenty your boy goes, "Hey, I uh, I was wrong." Yeah, I, I hear you. So what? But then. You essentially what we're doing is we're saying we're saying we but but because now people are chiming and saying they agree, but this is not about the child, this is the family too. Because aren't conservatives supposed and I'm not saying you're a conservative, but isn't the whole thing I 
I want family choice about what my kids taught. I want family choice about what my kid believes. I want. Why should the family and the kid not be able to make the decision? Not just the kid. I'm not saying I disagree if the law said no child should undergo that without notification of the parents or something. I do disagree with that law when it comes to abortion. I do. But I know we're not talking about that. But why the 18 cutoff? Wouldn't it be more appropriate at 15 or 16? Because wouldn't a teenage kid... And I don't know the studies. I don't know the studies, but I would imagine, I would imagine that most studies into this sexual orientation thing, the kid around puberty starts to know. I agree, six, seven, eight years old, especially if you got a crazy liberal parent that's just feeding into this, they could regret it later. But what about a kid who's well into their teens and everybody, you know, at the table, including the parents and the medical staff and everybody else agrees that they truly are transgender. Why is the state stepping in then and and saying that they can't make that decision, but they can as soon as they turn 19, if for nothing else, but then to make some kind of political statement? Okay. Like I said. Well, if, if my kid can hold his liquor at 10, why shouldn't I allow him to drink at home? Well, we're not talking about 10. We're talking about, like I said, 14, 15 years old. Okay, even at 14 or 15. I, I mean, think about yourself at that age, and I'll think about myself at that age. Were we more cognizant of the world and aware of things around us? Sure. Sure. But but did we know everything, Larry? Did we know exactly what we wanted out of life? I knew that I was a boy, and I sure as hell liked girls. I knew that much. Well, th these people would argue that that's because you're brainwashed by the patriarchy system that controls everything. But we both know that's not true, you know, because I still love girls and I still know I'm a guy. But I'm just saying, wouldn't you agree that you knew your sexual identity by 14, 15, and that if you did, perhaps some transgenders may. But maybe when you were much younger, you weren't fully aware, and we understand that. But once you were 14, 15 years old, you did have a handle on that. And transgenders more than likely probably do. I don't know the science, but if since we did, they probably did, no? Yeah, yeah I, I'm, not, I'm not completely disputing the idea of this gender, what do you call it, dysphoria or just the, the, the born into the wrong body, right? Yeah. I'm not putting that down. I'm not saying anything is wrong with it. I'm saying that you should like everything else society dictates. There's a point where you should be able to make an informed adult decision. And you're saying if the parents say, I want my boy to be a girl and the doctors say, yeah, that would be what's best for them. That's a case by case basis, but but the point was is that this is being broadcast as discriminatory, um, people not allowing medical professionals to treat transgenders. Yeah, but see, isn't that exactly what it is? Because look, you know me, I, I rail against the left when I have to, and I'm not trying to say that we can't rail against the left. But the the proposition now is that the left is saying that the government's interfering with the doctor's treatment of adolescents. And isn't that true? Because it's a case-by-case -case basis. If the doctor says at a teenage kid and their family says that they should undergo treatment, the government's saying, we don't care what you all say, you can't. That is yes, what's happening. That's the, that's the same across the board. I mean, yeah, so that that, that's happening. my point. It, it's the parent, uh, you know, as well as I do, that a lot of parents nowadays, especially in this woke universe we live in, are cater to their children's wants and, and desires, regardless of if it's practical or helpful or useful in any way for the kid at a later date. And that's where the state steps in and goes, your kid can't drink, your kid can't gamble, your kid can't vote, your kid can't 
do whatever, no matter what you say. I don't care how precocious your kid is. And, and I know I'm getting feedback about that sexual orientation is different, but the reality is a society doesn't, doesn't society have uh, an obligation to protect children from making poor choices. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. You're saying then your, your position is that you think there's enough, or you could either say enough or you could say one is too many. You know, you're saying there's enough parents that would not be making the decision based on informed, legitimate premise, but would simply be catering to the whimsical nature of their children, that this law is necessary to prevent those parents from allowing really bad decisions. Right. Yeah, because we can get into the argument that how many laws are really necessary, but it, but it just is, is the way that we function in a society. So you're saying, yeah, but what if the, so once the kid turns 18, then it's all out the window. So, right. Then it, then it's all out the window, just like anything, just like drinking or gambling or, or any other choice that, I mean, tattoos, man, you can get tattoos removed and it's still a law that the kids can't get a tattoo prior it's to not. being 18 without parental consent. And that's, yeah, that's just that's like age of consent with sexuality. Yeah. But think about this, right? You can't vote until you're 18 because that affects the whole society. You okay. can't drink. because You're probably going to drink and drive and kill somebody, but you could drink wine at mass and no one's going to put you in jail. If you give your kid wine at the dinner table, you just can't have a kegger with 14 year olds and buy them beer for obvious reasons. Right. But you could get a tattoo. If your parents consent, you could get married if your parents consent. You could do a lot of things your parent consent because it doesn't affect the overall society. So why can't a parent and a doctor consent to the undergoing the gender treatment? Uh, why I don't know. Why couldn't me and my 16, 17-year-old friends drink in a park without getting a ticket for underage consumption? We weren't hurting anybody else. We weren't driving. Were you with your parents? No, I wasn't with my parents. Exactly. It's different. And, and you could also... If the kid went to get transgender, you know, treatment without the parents' consent and other things, then that would be, a, uh, you know, against the law. But why are we preventing – if you give a kid a beer even and he's 16 at a ball game, if no one sees, they're not going to ticket the parent for that either. People do it all the time. But if you have a whole bunch of kids drinking because they'll cause trouble, they'll fight, they'll drive, that's different. Sure. Sure. But this is something that's not really reversible. And, yeah, but, but my point is, Larry, th this is probably not that big of an issue in Arkansas, but the, the social justice warriors are up in arms about it and broadcasting it as if all transgenders in Arkansas are not receiving any medical treatment. It's not about just getting the sex change, which is, which is what the bill is about. It's broadcasting it as if it's some horrific prevention slash discrimination of transgenders being provided medical services. Yeah, but see, here's, here's what I just can't get past with this logic thing on this show. If the doctor and the professional in psychology and psychiatry and anatomy and everything is confident that the kid is at an age that specific kid on that specific case where they know what their gender identity is and they would benefit from undergoing hormonal therapy, why are we saying or the government saying that doesn't have that expertise that the doctor can't treat them? 
Why? I, I don't know. Why, why are we saying that veterans with PTSD can't have access to medical marijuana in 900 states? You know, I mean, what, what's the difference here? My point is, is that it is, it is a disconnect between what's being broadcast and what the reality of the situation is. Hey, you do what they do in Jersey or Chicago. Go across the border and, and get your boy changed into a girl if you want, if it's that important, right? I don't know. I, I, I think, you know, this is a bad example, to be honest with you, of this mismessaging, because I don't when they say they're preventing them from getting medical treatment. I understand that if, you know, hey, headlines are headlines. And I agree that headlines are terrible and people are going to think they they're, they're withholding, uh, you know, cancer treatment from transgender youth, which I agree is bad messaging. But when you talk about, you know, categorically denying medical treatment to a class of people. And then you put in perspective this law that says a doctor says, I deem hormonal therapy uh, pr uh, proper in this particular case, given this particular individual's sexual orientation and the state saying you can't do that. It sounds a hell of a lot like the standards set forth in the abortion cases before the Supreme Court, where the foundational aspect that the court hung their hat on was you can't get between a woman and her doctor. Therefore, you can't categorically outlaw abortions. I understand this is children as opposed to grown women, but the the privacy patient to doctor aspect remains the same. Why is the government getting involved with those decisions? I understand an age, like you said, if there's an age where medical experts agree, and I, I would say prepubescent, that's what I would say, without any medical background, but just using my brain, prepubescent, they have no clue of knowing what their orientation is going to be, or better yet, even if they have a clue, it could evolve and change through puberty. But post-puberty, if all agree that they know their sexual orientation, I just do see it as the government intervening and getting in the way of a doctor treating a patient. I don't think there's any way. And you don't see where the doctors have anything to gain in this situation because that's not that's not a cheap surgery or procedure or, or whatever way they go with hormonal treatment. That, that is, that's a cash cow, man. And again, it is not – I don't think it's that big a deal in Arkansas – it's not that big of a percentage of our entire population. Yeah, so then wouldn't that go to my other point, which these states like Arkansas are passing laws that really don't have much to do with them? I mean, California might want to look into this, if anybody. Arkansas seems to just be doing it to catch headlines. And what it's doing is the one or two kids that are going to suffer for, from it, the government's going to get in the way of their doctor and their family's decisions. And why? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I guess you, you could debate from that end of it. And I can't disagree with you fully because until, you know, 10, 20 more years go by, we're not going to really know what the outcome is, right? No, but I think we have plenty of research at hand that tells us that if somebody's transgender, they knew immediately post-puberty they started to have that issue, if not earlier. And that's not me because I'm some far-left social justice advocate. It's well-documented. I'm not. I'm just, again, going with what makes sense. And it seems as though every case you see, and I bet you that the research and literature is pretty on point, that people are pretty aware of their gender identities Post-puberty, it's probably almost infallible. Pre-puberty, it might even be something they've seen pretty prevalently. Okay. I mean, right? I mean, you can't just say, well, I just agree because, you know, they're kids. And they're like, okay, I get it. But unless you show me literature that says that there's some critical mass of kids that are 14, 15 years old 
that don't that no. that made a mistake. I, I no, bet, but this I was we were talking opposite. about this before with the whole idea that, and this is a professor of gender studies, whatever that is these days, telling me that there are as many different sexes as there are size of genitals, and and, and I find that to be absolute horseshit. I know you do, but if you look in, you know, there's a gender study scholar that did the research. I got to read the research before I tell them that. Just dismiss them offhand. Well, like, these people yes. are saying that there's no fundamental difference between men and women in any way, shape, or form, and and I disagree with that. Not not because I'm a guy and I'm an old generation guy, but because I couldn't have a baby if I wanted to. Right there, there are gender differences. Yeah, I agree with whether that. we acknowledge them or not, or whether somebody is more attracted. See, we used to just call that gay and lesbian, right? If you're a woman and you're attracted to women, you were a lesbian. If you were a guy and you were attracted to other men, you were a gay man. And now it's become this gigantic, hey, that's not good enough. Let's modify our actual bodies to match what we're thinking. Uh, and, and that falls into a whole new order of 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 problematic things down the line, which we talked about before too, with the the pedophiles, they they are attracted to children. Does that make it okay because they're attracted to children, or do we find that appalling because societally we think it's wrong to be attracted to children? There's certain things that are wrong, certain things are right. There's a victim in that case, but there's been transgender people going all the way back to at least the early 20th century, probably at least late 19th, and I bet all the way back to Greece and Rome. So to act as if just because we didn't acknowledge it, it didn't exist, that's not accurate either. So my only point is if the research says – we can agree that some, some research is pseudoscience, some academic theories are, are nonsense. But I wouldn't be so quick to call sexual identification in terms of trans people um, being A, junk science, but B, I guarantee you that if we pulled out the data and the research – most of those people were aware post-puberty and never relented on it for the duration of their life. And if that's the case, if it's like a 97% chance that somebody recognizes accurately at 14 their gender identity and it doesn't waver, then the justification you've laid forth for the law kind of goes out the window, no? But I don't understand what waiting until you're legally able to even have sex at all is a problem. Because your sexual identity and the way you identify in society starts way before then. I know damn well I started interacting with the opposite sex and identifying my gender and kind of asserting myself in a sexual way, in a romantic way, long before I was 18. Sure. Freud talked about children are very well aware. I remember (laughs) kindergarten, first grade, sending the notes under the door, talking to the girl, you know, with the check one, yes or no kind of notes. I mean, yes, we identify, but the same people that are saying we should allow this to happen with children having their gender changed are th- the same people arguing that. Uh oh. Now I just done. don't. My echo is throwing me off. Huh? I just don't. I, I think. At the end of the day, if if the research is solid that they know and if the doctors agree and the family agrees and and whatever and it's a family decision, then. Why is the government getting in the way? It's the most conservative thing. The government stays the hell out of the way. I don't see why the government would get in the way of something like that. I don't, I don't, at 10 years old, yes. At nine years old, yes. At eight years old, yes. 
at 14 years old, 15, if the doctor, the family, everybody, why is the government saying, no, you got to wait two years? It seems why, why are they saying it's illegal for those age kids to have sex, Larry? It's not illegal. Two 16-year-olds can have sex. No one's going to no do anything to them. Two 15 yeah, and it's not old. statutory rape, but it's still a problem. It's still not legal, quote, yes, end quote. No, of any law that says two 15-year-olds can't have sex. Interesting. I'll have to research that. None. And, 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 and what's the arbitrary nature of, well, 16, you can't do it with your parents' permission, but 18, go for it. There's no actual interest in that. So they're going to just as likely to change their mind from 16 to 35 as they are from 18 to 37. What's the difference? There's no difference. Right. Doesn't make sense. Uh, but again, you, you can't, you can't do a lot of other things in society at a younger age that you can when you're older. Because I guess the idea is that if you make the choice at 18 and you fucked up, that's on you. Whereas if your parents go, yeah, that's right. I want you to be a boy instead of a girl. And, and you go, yeah, I feel like I'm a boy. And then you get that change early and you change your mind later. There's no going back. Yeah, I know. Just like a tattoo, which you could do with your parents permission, you know, just like uh, getting married, which you can do with your parents permission, just like having a baby. And then, you know what? This state would probably, the same people passing this law would say, you have to have the kid. You have to have the kid at 15, even if you were raped. That's not yeah. your decision, but but transitioning, you're not allowed to do that. It doesn't make sense, Rick. Great call. Appreciate the conversation, but we're past the five minutes. I know. I, I expanded I, I, my five minutes. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I think CLR was calling, so I'll talk to you next week, brother. Good. Thanks for the call, and uh, thanks for the conversation. I have later. All right. CLR, were you calling? Who else was calling? Who else was calling here? Somebody else was calling. Anyway. I have uh, six minutes, but remember, I can't go too far over because last time Mark got cut off. So anybody's got thoughts on, on what Rick said, anybody's got thoughts on anything else, uh, give us a call. Remember, I'm just going where the logic goes. Bitcoin is through the roof from what I know. But uh, I made money on some of the other ones, took it, you know, took a, a little bit off the top to just, you know, pad my bank account a little and then uh, play with house money. So that's what I'm doing, playing with house money. And yeah, I mean, the erythium is is going uh, is going pretty pretty. Uh, it's going sky high. Classic too. Erythium's up to like what thirty five hundred dollars, which was uh, unprecedented high. And now classics even going up. It's like at one. It was at one seventy today. It's it's nice. It's nice. You know, if you got in early, it's skyrocketing. I think because I honestly think, and I had Neil on before, and, you know, I should have Neil come back on to deal with the cryptocurrencies is what I should do soon. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think I bought Classic for like seven bucks. I didn't buy much, but seven bucks. Um, but I should have Neil on because I think I think what really spurred this cryptocurrency was that huge interest in the whole GameStop thing, the whole GameStop thing. I think now that people saw that happen, they see people make some money like, whoa, 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 whoa. They started looking at crypto, started looking at Bitcoin, started looking at all those other things. And they really, really got going and like, hey, hey, I'm going to get in on this. And now you see people, you know, when Doge got pretty high and I took I, again, I took I took some decent profit out, too, and I still got plenty in. But I didn't even think to pull it out because I'm like, look, now I can't lose anything because I already made a good amount of money on it. And at the end of the day, I think people are going to keep buying because they see this, this notion that, well, I can just, 
inflate the value of something by buying it. They're going to keep buying it. Now, I'll be honest with you, just like Neil said on the cast uh, about a month or two ago when we talked about the GameStop issue, and I want to have him on for this crypto thing, but you know, somebody's left holding the bag. I mean, so whoever gets in last and thinks it's going to keep going up and then everybody sells out from under him and he loses that investment, it's going to hurt him. So, you know, the speculative bubbles on these things, if they don't have any inherent value, which Doge really doesn't, if they don't have any inherent value, there's still a serious risk to certain people and there's certain, you know, huge risk to market volatility. Uh, and to, you know, could harm people. But hey, freedom of choice, right? Just like the transgender thing. You make your choice. You want to get in late? I'm not going to tell you you can't, but you may lose your money. But it's not my issue, is it? I'm not going to tell you you can't do it. So that's where we are with the uh, crypto stuff. Listen, I had, a, I had a great show. I hope you guys really, you know, my main message, I know we, we talked about a lot of other things later, uh, which I appreciate. I appreciate the calls and the conversations about things. Obviously, that's what the show's about. You can disagree. You can agree. Just as long as you stick with logic. And logic, wherever it takes you, you got to rock with it. You know, and even if it goes where you didn't think it would. But um, I hope everybody really took my message from the monologue, though, which was we really have to do a better job of finding common ground, common causes. And sociologically coming together rather than going apart all the time that's you know the end of the day so uh, i hope that resonated with people and 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 as we always do every week right so many of us do this i see you guys all doing it i'm doing it we go out now into the world with what we've talked about tonight and we we make it exponential. We start spreading that same theme. We start spreading that same knowledge. We start hitting those same points. We start practicing what we preach and we try to influence the circles around us. This podcast grows, but more importantly, we influence society as best as we each can, which may not change the world overnight. It may not change the country. It may not change the globe. But at the end of the day, we could have little influences where we are and we could keep exchanging information. And then when we go out into our little pockets, we have an impact, and that's all we could ask for as people. Each life you impact, each person, each mind you touch can have a significant impact that you don't even know about, and that's all we can do as individual human beings as we live through our life anyway. That's all we can ask for. So I appreciate you all joining me. Please, please, and I saw my boy JR do this on a random post. I never shouted it out. I saw it. It was a post about politics. I almost feel like it was a bunch of people on the left just in like kind of an echo chamber. And I saw JR post, you know, he invited them to listen to Logic and Larry because it was objective. And that was especially at the height of when I was calling out some of the misinformation on the left. Do that. I appreciate it. You know, plug the show. If you think somebody would be would enjoy the show, you think somebody would get something from it, you think a, a mind's inquisitive enough for it, you think it's something they would you know, benefit from or participate in, or they'd be a good new listener or whatever the case may be, you know, share it, share it, get more people on this bandwagon. And, and, and if anything, it's a nice thing to enjoy. You got good music, good vibes, good conversation, intelligent conversation. It gets everybody a little release, gets them some satisfaction that there are logical minds out here doing the right thing. In any event, I will speak to you guys all very soon. If I don't see you next week, I'm sure I'll see you the next, the week after that. I may be back next week. I'll let you know ahead of time. In any event, keep spreading the word. 
and I look forward to talking to you all very, very soon. It was a great night. Thank you for joining me. It's always a pleasure to talk with all of you and all your different viewpoints from around the world, around the country. Logic and Larry will be back very, very soon. Good night, all.